Go Wild is a free social community created for and by hunters. This means that unlike mainstream social media, your trophy pictures won't be censored. They're encouraged. As you spend time on Go Wild, you will earn awesome rewards such as gift cards, free swag, and big discounts on brands like Garmin and Vortex. You will even earn $10 just for signing up. Visit DownloadGoWild.com and sign up today. This is the Average Conservationist Podcast brought to you by Outdoor Class and in partner with 2% for Conservation. Outdoor Class is the new single source of premium outdoor education from trusted, knowledgeable experts. For hunters committed to improving their skills, Outdoor Class is the only subscription-based e-learning platform that provides unlimited access to video lessons from the world's most respected experts covering topics across a hunter's entire journey. Learn from industry leaders like Corey Jacobson, Randy Newberg, Remy Warren, and other prominent personalities in the organizations. Sign up today and use code AVERAGE to save 20%. 2% for Conservation's mission is to create an alliance of businesses and individuals that ensure the future of hunting and angling by committing their time and dollars to fish and wildlife. 1% of your time plus 1% of your money equals 2% for Conservation. 2% helps businesses and people pair with conservation causes to support things that fit what they care about. Whether you're into fishing, hunting, or just getting outdoors, 2% can help you not only start giving back to wildlife, but get certified for it. Getting 2% certified means you've made the same commitment as popular brands like Sitka, Stone Glacier, and Seek Outside in giving at least 1% of your time and dollars back to wildlife. But it's not just for outdoor companies, breweries, Contractors, coffee roasters, and even piano repair companies have earned 2% certification and stand out as leaders in their communities for doing so. Businesses that are committed to conservation deserve your business when you shop. Learn more about 2% for conservation at fishandwildlife.org. That's fishandwildlife.org. What is going on, everyone? Happy Wednesday. Uh, I hope that everyone's week is going well. Uh, I hope that uh, the next hour of the podcast here gives you a nice uh, welcome break from your day and uh, help helps get you through hump day uh, and one step closer to the weekend. This is the Average Conservationist Podcast, and I'm your host, Marcus Ewing. Uh, got a very interesting conversation today, uh, one that I thoroughly enjoyed from start to finish. Uh, today's guest is Dr. Sarah Marino, and Sarah <clears throat> is a doctor out of Austin, Texas. Um, she has her own practice called Marino Medica, and it, when I say interesting, uh, it's just because Sarah is, is taking... Um, kind of an old school approach to uh, building uh, or, or trying to get back to building uh, relationships, uh, the, the doctor-patient relationship um, that many of us grew up with, uh, especially those of us uh, who grew up in in small communities um, where, you know, the, the doctor, you know, really kind of knew everyone. Um, and that was uh, really just kind of standard practice, uh, I guess. And uh, Marino Medica and Sarah, uh, Sarah does a much better job explaining this, uh, throughout the course of the episode, but really just how, um, she's going about do that with a, a membership based, um, kind of platform, uh, for her patients, uh, which I just think is a, is a great, um, a great option for, for individuals out there, uh, seeking, 
seeking healthcare. Um, you know, we get into uh, how Sarah ended up going to medical school, what led her down that path, um, and then kind of tie it all together, um, talking about the the outdoors and the conservation aspect of Merino Medica, uh, how all of that ties together, and you know what the outdoors really looks like uh, for Sarah um, today. So. Great episode, um, ton of, uh, full of, full of a ton of great information, um, from Sarah. So episode 112, Dr. Sarah Moreno from Moreno Medica. Enjoy. All right. I'd like to welcome to the show today from Austin, Texas, Austin, Texas, Dr. Sarah Moreno. Sarah, how are you today? Great. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited. Yeah, no, absolutely. I know that as a doctor, um, recording a podcast in the middle of your afternoon is probably a little less than ideal and squeezing it in between patients and everything. But, uh, so I appreciate the time today. I really do. No, no problem. I'm excited. And like I said, I'm welcome sometimes to get to block off my calendar a little bit and do something like this. That's fun and different. So I'm excited to talk to you. Yeah, it definitely, uh, helps break up the day. Um, yeah, but, uh, absolutely. Yeah. So, Sarah, tell me a bit about yourself. Yeah, I am from Louisiana, born and raised. I went to college and medical school in Texas and uh, never left after those experiences. Um, I am an internal medicine physician, trained in internal medicine, and I am just last year started my own direct primary care practice. Um, it's kind of a new business model in medicine, not super new. I wouldn't say I'm a harbinger in the field or anything, but uh, direct primary care is basically um, membership-based medicine where we're kind of trying to restore um, the doctor-patient relationship without any other third parties or any other interrupters in that relationship, kind of, kind of back to the old days. Um, so I have a new practice and uh, taking new patients. Um, mem- the membership kind of gets you everything that you would expect from a quote-unquote traditional uh, primary care doctor. Kind of the, the terms used in um, that people use kind of all throughout the country is either PCP or GP, so a general practitioner or primary care provider. So just your go-to doctor for your yearly physical checkups, the, fo- uh, the person that you go to whenever you're sick. Um, just to kind of keep you healthy and, and know you really well. And um, yeah, so that's what I do. I've been building the practice for really actively about four to five months since I went back to work after having um, my baby that I had uh, seven months ago. So um, I'm also a wife and a mom, uh, most importantly. And then and then after that, I'm, I'm a doctor. So um, that's kind of a, a snapshot of my business. Um, I practice a hybrid of traditional medicine, but also functional kind of holistic care. So um, that's my favorite part about it is that um, I get to kind of use my training in terms of, you know, traditional medicine and um, all that I learned that's really valuable in medical school and residency. But um, we don't get taught a whole lot about um, nutrition and just uh, general you know, overall health and wellness, like just being outdoors, for example, which is kind of why we're talking today, you and me. (laughs) Um, So, uh, um, yeah, I practice functional medicine, holistic medicine, and um, I'm excited to have more patients come on and and be a good primary care doctor for folks. 
Yeah. So a couple questions there. Uh, when you mentioned internal medicine, what exactly do you mean by that? Uh-huh. Yeah. So um, after medical school, we decide um, we go into what's called residency, which is our word for training. So post grad training, we spend anywhere from three to seven years in a residency program, um, learning how to be whatever kind of doctor that we chose to be. So internal medicine is kind of the biggest bucket that's non-surgical. So folks can either, they can go into general surgery, they can go into neurology, dermatology, radiology, name, name all of that stuff. Internal medicine is like one of the biggest buckets where we want to practice um, non-surgical. We're kind of, we're kind of, we're the thinking doctors. We, we diagnose, we diagnose uh, complex problems and, and, uh, and acute issues. Just, you know, is this a common cold? Is this a virus? Is this a bacterial illness? Do you need antibiotics? Um, So I'd say we're the biggest non-surgical specialty. And then after internal medicine, some people decide to go on and, and be a specialist. So from internal medicine, you get cardiology, uh, gastroenterology, infectious disease. So many of the specialists that you hear about, um, they completed an internal medicine training, which is what I did. I just decided to stop and be a general medicine doctor. So kind of I'm a, so they are, you know, kind of a master of their field. And I would say internists are more of a jack of all trades and a master of none. Okay. So um, we're generalists. And internal medicine is, is the practice of, you know, it's kind of a, syn- a synonym would be a, what a pediatrician is to a kid, okay. an internist is for an adult. See, yeah. now you're speaking my language with, with two young kids as well. Yeah. Like, yeah, that makes complete <laughs> sense. You dumbed it down for me. Thank, yeah. thank you. Um, yeah, no problem. So <clears throat> as, a, as someone who practices internal medicine, is that basically like kind of what you, you mentioned earlier, like your primary uh, care provider is that typically um, what they specialize into is is just internal medicine and then and then stop at that point and, and instead of you know taking that deeper dive or that next step into something uh, much more narrow and much more specific. I'd say it's probably um, you know I don't know the stats on that probably fifty fifty. Um, okay. Other primary so other primary care doctors or GPs. Um, they may also be family medicine trained. So when you hear folks say I'm a family doctor, they like family medicine is an actual title of a residency program. So they did family medicine. I did internal medicine. We're similar but different. Um, so internists can either stop and practice, you know, office-based clinical medicine and be a PCP, just like a family doctor can. They can also be what's called a hospitalist. So if you went to the ER and you um, – had you know your you had your gallbladder was infected and you had cholecystitis that's what that's called um the er would either call you either call me to help come admit you to the hospital or they might call they would also call surgery because your gallbladder also your gallbladder needs to come out um but we or if, if an if an older person was diagnosed with pneumonia and was sick enough to be in the hospital the er would call me to come get the patient, admit them to the hospital, and be in charge of their hospitalization while they were on antibiotics and getting fluids and monitoring vital signs and all of that. So internists can also be hospitalists, um, which is managing really sick people in the hospital that don't need a surgeon. They just need intense medical care um, for, you know, whatever their diagnosis is. 
But I'd say it's probably 50-50 that a lot of us go on to be a specialist, and then some of us stay or stop and either become hospitalists or clinic doctors. Okay. All right. Well, that yeah, no, that mm-hmm. makes makes complete sense. And one of the things that you had mentioned about your practice was was really trying to build back that relationship between doctor and patient. And you know, when I was looking on your on your website, um, it uh, you have like the, the membership um, aspect of it. Now, is that something that is still kind of all done through insurance, or is that more like if you don't have insurance, it's still you can get the same type of thing or or how does that work? Because you said it's kind of a, a newer um, practice. Well, not, you know, you're not, it's yeah. kind of a newer way of, of doing things. Yeah, good question. And I know that it, it can be confusing because in our culture, um, in, in our medical culture, healthcare culture, we are so used to insurance right. having a say in so much of what happens that it's hard to think outside that, outside that box. So I don't involve insurance at all. I do not accept insurance. I do not deal with insurance companies. Like if you came to me and you, and you wanted me to be your doctor, that relationship is simply between me and you, you pay your monthly membership fee. And it's that simple. You get, you get basically unlimited visits throughout the year. Um, I can, you know, manage, you know, blood pressure, diabetes, or just trying to fix metabolic health in general for folks that aren't, aren't necessarily diabetics. Metabolic health is actually one of the things that I'm really passionate about. Um, but thyroid, um, and then, and then again, if you're sick, um, viral illnesses, belly pain, headaches, like I, I work up pretty much anything. Um, and all of that is included in the monthly membership fee. So no one gets a bill from my office. Okay. Um, and I don't deal with insurance at all. It's just between me and the patient. You know, to be honest, just given my experience with, you know, with, with having, you know, young kids, especially, uh, my youngest was really kind of raised. Uh, he was born mm-hmm. shortly before COVID started. So he yeah. didn't have the, the same opportunities that my, my older child had where there's a lot of interaction with, you know, other kids and, you know, activities and stuff like that. So super weak immune yeah. system just because he wasn't exposed to all those things that kids typically are to kind of strengthen that and everything. So he's been sick yep. a ton, you know, and things like that. So I always, it's always just, um, kind of a pain in the ass for a lack of a better way to put yeah. it, like dealing with insurance and what your copay is and what your doctor's office, you know, visits going to cost you and, you know, all routine things, but in order to, but yeah. to cut that out, I mean, that has to be, um, especially for your patients, such a, a welcome change and, and never having to, to worry about that and knowing that, you know, four to six weeks down the road, another bill is going to come on top of the copay that you paid and, and all of that. It seems like it just really yeah. simplifies the whole experience. I mean, I, I think it does. I am, I, I think the tide still needs to shift and still needs to turn because like I said, it's so hard for people. Now I, I don't endorse anyone to go out and cancel your insurance. I mean, I do think uh, what what pairs best with what I do is a um, a high deductible healthcare plan that if you you know if if you get cancer or you get in a car wreck that you're taken care of, because the rest of the healthcare industry has not necessarily um, caught on to this to this way of doing business and healthcare costs are still astronomical, but I think this is something that I can do as a as a primary care doctor, because insurance companies are not in the business of paying out claims. They're in the business of making money. 
And right. so when you have what, and when you have what we call them rent seekers, I didn't say that they're rent collectors. A rent collector is is owed money that they're due because you're you're leasing something that they own. But rent seekers, they come and try to siphon money out of a process that they have no business being in. So they don't own any of my medical knowledge. And they shouldn't own any decisions that you have medically, healthcare-wise, for you and your kids. But what they, but rent seekers in medicine have come in and they've inflated. It, they are why healthcare is so expensive. I'm not making any more money than I make. I make less money than doctors that did that did what I do than they made 20 or 30 years ago. I mean, oh, Medicare wow. com, com, continue, yeah, continues to cut back the amount of money that they're paying doctors for work. They just cut it back again, I think like 2% a couple of weeks ago. So healthcare costs continue to rise. I continue to make less money for my peers that collect insurance or use insurance or bill insurance rather to be more precise. But so where's that money going, right? So it's, it's going to rent seekers and people that, tr that try to siphon money out of the, um, out of all the value that there is in healthcare, and so by taking them out of the equation, um, I think that's part of introducing competition and in, in, into the market. It's a little indirect, but um, if anyway, yeah, I could talk about I could talk <laughs> about like physician, physician autonomy and, and free market medicine and patient autonomy are also a few things that I'm really passionate about, and I think that direct primary care or DPC um, is what is what we call it. Um, is part of uh, the weapon against all a lot that's broken in our healthcare uh, situation in this country. So yeah. um, I shouldn't have to ask insurance. I shouldn't have to ask an insurance company who most of them, almost almost none of them, are know anything about healthcare. Um, I shouldn't have to ask them permission to to order a lab or order an image or order a medicine that I that I want for you. That should be between me and you. Yeah, absolutely. So. So what was it that decided to make you go this route instead of, I guess, I, I, I'd call it the kind of the, the more standard route that you see doctors, you know, with everything going through insurance. So what made yeah. you decide to kind of buck the trend a little bit? Yeah. Oh, that's a lot. That's a lot. That's a complex <laughs> answer. I think... <laughs> One of the reasons I went into internal medicine, uh, to, when I went when I went to medical school, I actually wanted to be an OB/GYN. Um, one of my favorite things about science, about medical school, was reproductive physiology. I just love that whole process, and you know, finding the heartbeat for the first time for a new mom was just one of the coolest experiences of of medical school and, and residency for me. Um, but, or excuse me, just medical school. Even in residency, we get a little bit of exposure to that, like in the ER and stuff. But um, for me, my kind of my business, the business part of me came into play. Um, I actually majored in business in college. I majored in finance. And um, so the, the part of me that looked at, okay, what do I really want my life to look like in 10, 20, 30 years? And based on that vision, what fit and, and what kind of doctor I could be, what fits with that vision. And I think we should probably teach high schoolers to think about their next steps like this. Uh, I think that should be more common. Um, and I'm not, you know, tooting my own horn. I wish somebody would have asked me that when I was 18 instead of when I was, you know, 24, 25, about to choose what kind of doctor I was going to be for the rest of my life. But I chose, you know, to skip a lot of mental steps and skip a lot of conversation and thought processes. 
I went with internal medicine because I saw that internal medicine, family medicine, and pediatrics are really, there's a couple other specialties like really specialty surgeons uh, or um, like eye surgeons. And, but, but for the most part, most, most doctors are, are, have to be a part of a huge group to be able to find work. It is very difficult to be an entrepreneur in medicine. And so I chose internal medicine because it was still one of the last options standing where I could work for myself one day. And then from there, um, just looking at my colleagues in internal medicine and seeing that, you know, because of the insurance model, these folks have to see like 30 or 40 patients a day just to meet their income goals. And they're unhappy. Patients aren't happy. If you talk to patients and talk about their primary care experiences, like most of them don't even know their doctor. Like they may see them once a year, but then the next year they're not available. So they see an NP or a PA and they have these people writing prescriptions for them that they don't even know. And I just didn't, you know, I just didn't want to be, I just didn't want to be a part of that. And I think some of my colleagues are happy and I don't want to be negative. Uh, This is supposed to be about, you know, positive change and what I love about my career and what I like about my job. But I just looked around and said, what do I want my life to look like? And and this path is not consistent with that vision. And so um, this is the only way I can be an entrepreneur if I want that option one day, which is how I chose primary care. And then I got out of the traditional model um, because I saw that most doctors and most patients were not happy. Yeah. So, so. You, me- you just mentioned that you when you graduated from college you had a, a a business degree in finance how do you go from i mean those in, in looking at where you're at now and, and starting your own practice like I, I i can certainly make the connection but at the time mm-hmm. you know how did you go from a finance major to then going to medical school yes oh fair question i <laughs> i i actually i majored in biology as well so i think okay. some my favorite thing. I mean, I'm, I'm a huge nerd. I just, I would go to school for the rest of my life if I could do that and make money. So that might answer your question. I just love, uh, I love learning. I love school. Um, I love biology and I love numbers. And so I, I, I picked finance over math because at that point I didn't really have a lot of counsel or knowledge on what you could even do with the math degree other than be a teacher. Um, and so I, I, I think I've always been somewhat strategic and so I, I got a business degree because I was at a school that has an incredible business reputation. And so I wanted that degree so I would be employable and uh, like if medical school didn't work out. And then after being in corporate America for about a year and a half, I decided that I did want to go to medical school. And so I pursued that. Okay. Um, I, I'd, I'd already had. Yeah. So I majored in biology as well. I just left that out in, in the beginning. Okay. No, that's all right. And how long ago was it? Yeah. Uh, I think you mentioned that you actually started your own practice. I started my own practice in October uh, just to get the groundwork laid so I could be ready. I had my baby in November, my second baby in November. And so I laid all the groundwork, except, you know, uh, did a lot of work. Well, really all of 2021, not just in October. But I wanted all the groundwork to be laid so that when I came back from being home with him, um, which was in March, I would be able uh, to hit the ground running. So I would say I've actively been doing this uh, since March. Okay. And I mean, so is it everything? But I've, been, you... I've been practicing medicine. Sorry, I've been practicing medicine outside 
of training though for if you include residency training i've been practicing practicing medicine for six years okay okay and i mean since uh starting your own practice marino medica is it is it what you thought it would be or you know is, is it still kind of taking shape and you you know where you want to go and you're still working to get there or is this i mean are you are you happy with with the decision to to branch out onto your own to to do things to to you know cultivate that that doctor patient relationship and really try to connect more with your patients it's been tough i think anybody that starts their own business would say that yeah um but i think that those the, the reason i keep going every week is because i think those are the things that give us the greatest reward and um especially you know having having two small babies and um a spouse and um he started his own business as well last year or about 18 months ago um it it's been i mean it's been hard but i i am i remind myself of why i'm doing this and um I remind myself of the vision that I have for my company um, over the next five to 10 years and that every single day, um, even if it's a quiet day and it's a tough day that I, you know, I I didn't get a new patient this week. um, That's okay because I learned something with each new patient that I do sign on to the practice. I learned something that I need to tweak or need to fix a little bit just to make things more streamlined, more professional, better for them. Um, an extra resource that I didn't, that I didn't have, um, new doctors to consult, you know, I've, there, are, uh, if there's something that's outside of my domain and I work up a problem and I, and I maximize, you know, my ability, then I need to, I need to consult a specialist. So just networking, uh, in Austin Dripping Springs area, um, learning about, okay, well, I, I don't accept insurance. So what can I do? What, what's happening in, in Texas? for, you know, financial options uh, that are like alternatives to insurance. Um, So trying to address all pieces of the broken piece of the healthcare model is very overwhelming. Um, But because of the model that I'm in, I feel an obligation to be able to, you know, talk to patients about alternatives to traditional health insurance. So that's just one example. But I mean, it's slow and steady wins the race. And it's, it's been really hard, but it's been Every time that I meet with a new patient and get to fix a problem or uh, even if I just get the smallest piece of feedback that they are so happy that they can call me and I answer the phone and not a stranger, um, you know, just something like that is super rewarding to me and just helps me helps me keep going. But, yeah, I'm happy and I'm I'm committed. And I think the vision for and and passion you know i think we should be doing where find out where our strengths and our passions collide and do that yeah and so that's that's a great piece of advice i'm getting yeah i mean i'm getting closer and closer to that i mean sometimes i joke that i mean i'm 35 and um still not sure what i want to do when i grow up but i know that right (laughs) now that i'm doing exactly what i should be doing yeah and i would imagine that throughout the the process of starting your own practice like the medicine is is the easy part right i mean that's that's the stuff that you know it's the it's the entrepreneurial side of it the business side of it like that's that's what takes work that's that's where the trial and error is so to speak uh in the entire process absolutely i agree and not like i mean the medicine is i mean 
not in an arrogant way. I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm a brilliant doctor, like, but yes, there are things about the medicine that become subcortical, but trying to also reshape and rethink some of the things that I do because of how I was trained in a traditional sense that might not be best and think, okay, I took an oath to do no harm. If you read the Hippocratic Oath, um, I mean, it's kind of long, but that's kind of one of the pieces that stands out to us. And to to, essentially, I'm paraphrasing, but do what's in the best interest of the patient. So I learned that, you know, that we don't check this lab and, and, you know, within these guidelines, or we don't screen people for diabetes unless this and that and the other. Well, is that is that really the best thing that's for the patient? Or is that just the thing that's made sense financially for the past few decades, because that's what insurance told us to do? Right. And what what is the best? So rethinking the practice of medicine, like it's easy for me to know what to do if you have hypertension. It's easy for me to prescribe to prescribe a medication. It's hard to know. Well, is is it safe? Is it reasonably safe to try to fix this organically instead of just giving you a new medication? You know what I mean? So that's where the functional medicine comes in and um, the holistic care comes in. And that is where the patient relationship is important because because patients have to buy in that you care about them and that and they have to trust you to be able to do what you say. It's a form of leadership. And that and that is that's the the hardest part is the emotional and the mental investment. Um, yeah. So I, I, I'm not sure if it really answered your question, but uh no, it absolutely does because I would. You just made a really good point there, Sarah. The the emotional um, investment um, that that comes with the doctor uh, patient relationship. Um, you know, you in, in my experience um, with you know with healthcare and everything like that is um, it's it's almost very robotic, right? I mean the the. Mm-hmm. The physician has or the doctor has a job to do, um, and they're very good at at taking the the emotion out of it. Um, I don't have any friends who are doctors. Uh, I have friends who are nurses. Uh, I guess I have a friend uh, who is a a doctor, but a a veterinarian. He's a a veterinarian. So, um, but he kind of has that same uh, approach. Like he's, he's very kind of stoic. In everything that he does, um, you know, very matter of fact, kind of, um, I, and I don't mean it in a negative way, but I, I, you know, the, the things that he probably sees, sees and deals with every day, um, you know, it, it becomes second nature, right? And that's got to be a, a really tough yeah. part of the, the profession is, is, you know, seeing people sometimes at their worst and, mm-hmm. you know, they're, they're looking, I, I would assume that, you know, patients are looking to the doctor for um, the empathy or the sympathy and to, mm-hmm. you know, to, to know, like you just said, that that their um, their doctor has their best interest and having them understand that. And that I can imagine can be a, a very difficult thing to do, especially because everyone is different in terms of uh, from a patient standpoint. Yeah, absolutely. Um, absolutely. And a lot of I mean, it's, um, it's also a vulnerability for me, you know, it's a vulnerability to put myself out there and say, I am willing to be in such a committed relationship with you that I'm going to take, I'm going to, I'm asking for, uh, you know, a membership. I'm asking for you to pay me every month and have me on retainer to be there for you. 
Yeah. And um, it's it's a vulnerability for me as well, and to open myself up to, you know, or I haven't had any patients like this so far. I've I love all the patients that have signed on the practice so far, and um, but there's that vulnerability. Well, in the beginning, going back to kind of the old school, like traditional, in the good sense of the word, like the old school medicine where you had, you know, that, that one doctor in a small town and, and he knew everybody and took care of everybody, he or she. And, and that's kind of, um, if that's, that's my vision for my practice, I hope I'm not the only one. There's plenty of patients to go around in the city, but, um, if that's my vision, like I have a responsibility and that's a commitment on my end as well. And that is, uh, well, that's where I was kind of going with like the emotional and the mental investment and um, the mental and emotional work that goes into it as well. But again, I think it's the more rewarding option. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because I think about, I mean, I grew up in a very small rural community here in Michigan and what you just described is exactly, um, you know, the upbringing that I had with, you know, my primary care um, provider, right? It was a doctor who, you know, my parents saw, who my sister saw, who I saw, who, you know, knew us by first name, if, you know, every time we came in or, or you'd run into them at a restaurant, you know, if you were going out to eat or something like that. And they, you know, they know you on first name basis. They'll come and say hello to you and your family. And like, it's what it seems is you're taking a very um, kind of small town approach to, to medicine, uh, in a, in a much, you know, in a big metropolitan area, which I think is just outstanding because like you've alluded to a few times, like that's, that, that goes back to, you know, when we were kids and how we grew up. And that's, I think that as, as time goes on, history has a way of repeating itself. And especially now with, you know, uh, you know, people that are our age, um, are always kind of looking for, change or they're looking for uh, a new or better way to to do things and it could range from you know medicine to the way you brush your teeth or you know whatever the case is (laughs) and they they want that that nostalgic feeling I think to some degree they want that comfort level um for for themselves and then for their kids you know they want you know their kids to have those same experiences uh that they did with um you know doctors or dentists or, or whatever the case is and this is a, a great step in, in, in that direction. Yeah. Thank you. And I think my last thought on that, on last thought on that topic is I, I also hope that from a doctor's point of view, if more young people in residency see us doing this and being happy and being successful, I mean, I have a ton of friends that are my age or a bit older who just can't find a primary care doctor. Yeah. And that's because a while back we stopped, stopped, like people stopped um, not, well, how do I say this? Most people would go into fellowship, uh, which is the post-residency training I was mentioning, where you become a cardiologist or a GI doctor or um, a kidney doctor, like they would specify, they would you know, pick a specific organ and become a master at it. Well, because of that, and that was because um, it's easier, uh, you can also make more money doing that. There's a lot of reasons that happen, but there's less people just stopping um, with with the general internal medicine training. Um, And so there's there's a a deficit of internal medicine doctors and primary care doctors. Um, And so I think if more people saw 
us stopping and doing primary care in this model and saw that doctors and patients can be happy in primary care, there'd be more of me to go around and more people would have primary care doctors. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So I would, that's, I would that's love really good... to, I mean, yeah, I would love to be able to um, maybe have kind of a, a, a teaching role um, for residents to come in and, and see and see what I do and see what DPC looks like and that you don't have to do, you don't have to go into the traditional model uh, to be a good generalist to be a good primary care doctor and we need primary care doctors. That's what keeps people out of the hospital. Yeah. It's, it's what keeps, it's what keeps people out of the ER. Um, yeah. so, and out of urgent care, you know? Yeah. And especially with, um, the way things have gone over the last two and a half years and ERs yeah. all over the country, just being overrun over, you know, doctors and nurses being uh, yeah. overworked and short staffed and, you know, people you know waiting in ERs for hours and hours on end because they just there's no beds available there's no doctors available to see them I mean yeah that certainly is a a very uh, prominent issue uh, in the healthcare industry as a whole I would think yeah it is absolutely one of the biggest problems I think yeah other than hyperinflated costs and um, all of that all of aside from the economics of it yes I think that's probably one of the biggest problems yeah. So I want to shift gears a little bit here. Um, so you grew up in Louisiana and then you, you found yourself in Texas for college and, and never left, like you said. And, and from an outdoors perspective, um, you know, I know that Texas is I mean, it just has any and everything that someone would want to want to do outside. So what did you know, what did the outdoors look like to you growing up in Louisiana and did that change over the course of time? I mean, what is, I guess, what is the, your relationship with the outdoors? Yeah. So growing up, honestly, I was not really, I grew up in North Louisiana and all the men in my family were super active outdoors, especially, uh, duck hunting. Yeah. Uh, my brother is the most avid duck hunter that I know. He's obsessed. Uh, so I grew up around it. All the men in my, most of the men in my family, uh, with the exception of my dad, actually, which may have been why I wasn't super involved in it myself, but the women in my family, like, weren't really included in the, in those activities, which is fine. I'm not saying anything. I love all my uncles and grandpas and my brother. I think it was just kind of a, uh, when, you know, my grandmother and my mom and my aunts weren't involved. So like, why would we I mean, we fished a little bit, but the point is I wasn't super involved in the outdoors um, until in medical school when I met my now husband. Um, and so I just wanted to be a part because, first of all, I think it's really important. Um, I wanted, I mean, I wanted to be his friend, obviously, right? So I think it's important <laughs> to, I think it's important to be, to be really good friends with your spouse. And so and I, I wanted to be able to share the things that he enjoyed and so uh, I started going out um, deer hunting, duck hunting, that kind of stuff with him and just really fell in love with it. Um, I got kind of obsessed with whitetail, uh, whitetail deer hunting and, you know, I have a deer log and where I shot it and where I shot it and all the things. Yeah, and so welcome to the I would say, you know, <laughs> yeah, I know it's, it's, kind of, it's, it's ridiculous. Um, so the outdoor, I would, I would say uh, that was, I guess, you know, seven years ago when I started getting outside with my husband, Trent, and just, you know, really fell in love with it. 
and um, and then just being in those circles, um, you know, we're, we're involved with the, my brother is heavily involved with uh, the Delta Waterfowl Group and the Coastal Conservation Association and just getting more involved in, uh, with those things and having more friends that have similar interests and uh, learning more and more about, you know, these animals that we, you know, uh, love to hunt and fish and all of that. I also love uh, bay fishing. My husband is um, an avid offshore fisherman. Um, and when we first met also, we went down to Port Aransas a lot to, to fish, to bay fish. And I, I, that's my favorite form of fishing. So just getting to know more about uh, the places and the animals that we, that we like to, to hunt and fish has just, you know, made me love it even more. Yeah, no, and isn't it amazing how it really doesn't take a lot? And I think a lot of it has to do too with you know, look, you know, in in this particular case, your husband, but kind of your mentor to a degree in, in terms of yeah. being introduced to the outdoors and and showing you the ropes and and explaining, you know, really everything that comes along with it. Because yeah, and especially you know, I, I'm I'm making a bit of a leap here, but how your how your mind works uh, as a doctor, you know, always trying to understand everything to the fullest, right? And, and needing to, to have kind of an explanation behind things, which I would imagine kind of goes hand in hand with, you know, diagnosing an issue with a patient. But, you know, like if let's talk about, you know, like whitetail hunting specifically, right? Like understanding or, or needing to know why deer are acting this way, why they are, you know, maybe yeah. moving, uh, you know, through the woods in a specific way, right? So you're just... He, He's just, yeah. you know, you're, you're asking all these questions and just uncovering a ton of information. And, you know, if you've only kind of been at it for seven years, I mean, that's, you know, that's a ton of, of information to try to, to take in in a relatively short amount of time, considering I'd imagine that your husband's probably been doing it for, for quite a while now. Oh, yeah. I mean, since he, since he could walk. So um, he grew up in Beaumont, Texas, and has been um, hunting and fishing I mean, literally since he could walk. So, no, you're right. And you, I mean, you hit the nail on the head. I think as a learner, um, someone who loves learning, just wanting to understand, you know, even the process of like showing me how, you know, to shoot the rifle the first few times, like, um, you know, this is, and, and, you know, just little policies like, hey, the gun is always loaded. You always walk here yep. when we're walking with the gun. the gun. The gun's always loaded. I'm like, well, it's not loaded. He's like, I know, but the gun is always loaded. I'm like, Oh, yes. got it. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and yep. like learning all these things that I'm going to, that I'm going to like, you know, tell Sadie and Samuel, you know, the gun is always loaded. Um, if you're carrying it like this, you always walk behind your dad and, you know, we're here to have fun. Like just instilling these things that they'll always remember and that will be special to them is just, is just super exciting. But you, but yeah, just the learning process and, you know, what deer are doing this month, you know, for us to be ready to hunt here in a few months. And, and also a huge part of it for us too, is, the, is, is eating clean food. Yeah. Um, I, I love, you know, I, and, and, and that's a big deal because it ties in with, you know, me being, being good friends with my husband and like being supportive and celebrating when he gets to go down and fish, you know, and brings home some tuna or swordfish or whatever. And some, you know, some women don't like that. They don't like when they leave. And I'm like, well, I'm going to get ceviche when he gets home. And that's a big deal. <laughs> and, and, and maybe, you know, if we, you know, maybe next month, if we can set up, you know, grandmother time, like I'll get to go um, and be a part of that. So uh, the clean food, which I mean, ties in with what I do because, you know, in functional medicine, food is, food is medicine. Yeah, and absolutely. so 
um, having so much, you know, having enough venison in our freezer for a year um, until we get to shoot, you know, the next couple of, of, of dough is a big deal and really important to us. And um, so it's, yeah, it's so multi-layered. It's, it's, it's really fun, really important. And um, I also think, you know, we have a responsibility to steward, you know, the, the creation. So this is all part of that. Yeah. And it's, uh, it, it, I always kind of think about this in a particular instance where, um, in a family where both the husband and wife are, are very active outdoors and, um, you know, both, uh, enjoy hunting or, or, or hunting and fishing or hunting or fishing. Um, if you look at a family, like a, a dual income family, right. That was a, you probably learned about that in business school. Um, yep. but you know, like, a, kind of a, a dual income family when it comes to, to wild game. Right. I mean, it's now you guys yeah. can you both get your tags uh, or if you're out fishing, you guys both have a, a you know a limit of whatever it is that you're fishing for that you can bring home. It just doubles everything. And it's just that much better. And it's yeah, it, it's uh, it's really um, a, a neat way to kind of look at it uh, in, a, in a much healthier way than than having to put dollars and cents behind it. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great way to put it. I hadn't thought about that, but it's, it's a form of provision. And yeah. when when you do it together, it's double you know, double provision. So yeah, and and it's it, kind of, I mean, it's free. It's not free. It's not, it's not free, but it's mostly free food. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it's, so. and you know, as you get older too, like that's one of the cool things is, um, you know, having, having that foundation already laid with you and your husband and, and, and all of this knowledge that by the time your kids are old enough to hunt that it's now going to become a family thing, right? When you can get them outside, yeah. you can, like you just talked about, you know, um, you know, teaching the kids that, you know, the gun is always loaded. I mean, I think that getting kids exposed to the outdoors, um, especially at a young age and in a way that, uh, is informative, but is also fun. Um, they're much more apt to, to want to continue to do those things as they get older. Yeah, for sure. So, so, so as you know, uh, a hunter, you know, and an angler now, um, as you've gotten, you know, further on in life, how does, you know, really conservation kind of tie into Merino Medica and your practice? Well, I think it's important to my practice because not to be too simplistic, but it's important because it's important to me and I'm a, I'm a super small business and um, I think kind of tying in what we were talking about um, earlier about that, trying to go back to the the olden days of that, that familiar kind of nostalgic, I like to use that word, doctor-patient relationship. You know, I think, I think patients want to feel more like their doctor is a human and is a real, a real person. Yeah. And um, so for one thing, I mean, not to, not to capitalize on this, uh, interest in a negative way but you got to put stuff out there that makes people feel like they can relate to you yeah and i would also i would also love more patients that like to hunt and fish i mean that's just, i mean i think no matter what your business is you're kind of going to try to you're trying to connect with people and so um but from a from a, even a medical standpoint or a healthcare standpoint um you know since the 1800s it's been it's been obvious to folks, um, you know, being folks being like policymakers that 
exposure to the outdoors, exposure to green space, it has numerous health benefits. Um, and a few years ago, they did what we call a meta-analysis, which is basically just like a nerdy way to say that we took a bunch of studies and, and analyzed them. Um, because there's not a whole lot of like, you know, quantifiable evidence that, well, there wasn't until just a few years ago, but there wasn't a whole lot of quantifiable evidence that green space and humans interactions with green space is uh, like has health benefits. But uh, I think like in 2018 or 19, they did a huge meta-analysis of like a hundred studies, observational studies, where they looked at um, like tons and tons of health outcomes being just like all-cause mortality, um, which basically means just overall all-cause death, uh, cholesterol levels, blood pressure, um, stress levels, like there are actual stress biomarkers that we can look at, like morning cortisol. And they looked at all of the, these things and they, um, concluded that um, that there is like statistically significant um, health benefits from green space ex exposure, and so I just feel you know as a functional medicine slash holistic pra practitioner, um, encouraging folks to spend more time outside, even if you just go in your backyard and do yoga. I mean, you don't you don't have to you know go to a national park. You don't have to travel to Yosemite, but just or Yellowstone or whatever, but just being outside is an actual, um, uh, a realized health benefit and it's important. And so I feel like um, I have a vested interest in conserving uh, the green space that we, that we do have. And in a very urbanized city like Austin, you're obviously having like less and less frequent human interaction with green space. And especially in Texas, you know, we, we have pretty much, I think all private land and no public I'm not sure about that, but I don't, I don't know how much public land we have. It's definitely not much. Yeah, it's a um, very high percentage of private. Of private, yeah. Um, but anyway, they they refer uh, like people back to the 1800s. You know, they used to call the green space the quote unquote lungs of our society. Um, and I love that analogy. Like, I mean, that's exact. That's right up my alley. I mean, uh, a human body analogy is is right up my alley. So um, it's important. To me that my patients spend time outside um, and therefore I just think it naturally follows that I have a, a vested interest in conservation and like I said earlier um, we have a you know responsibility to steward the creation and um, and so I'm fortunate enough as an entrepreneur to get to you know put my money where my mouth is and spend money on the things that, that I'm passionate about so that was yes. a lot but those are the, the big, the big, the big reasons. <laughs> no. And that all makes total sense. The way, um, the two kind of tie into each other, uh, in your views on, on medicine and, you know, a, a healthy lifestyle and the lifestyle that, you know, hunting and angling and providing for yourself. Um, I mean, those, those all go hand in hand and make total sense. So how was it that yeah. you learned about 2% for conservation? Um, I mean, honestly, I simply, I, I have some really good friends that are also entrepreneurs in, in Dripping Springs with me in my hometown or not my hometown in my current town. Um, they started a coffee company, uh, maybe a year to 18 months ago. Um, they also are, are co, you know, co anglers, co hunters. Uh, we, uh, they're, their name, they're the sea dwarfs. They started, um, wild rivers coffee. Yeah. Uh, Shout out to Sammy back. and Marshall. And we, 
Yeah, see me and Marshall. So we, uh, and my husband and I, two Octobers ago, actually went with Marshall um, on an elk hunt in, in New Mexico. That was our first elk hunt. Um, I didn't have a tag, but Trent did. And it was just an honor just to get to be there and, and you know, hunt with them and, and stalk and uh, and see that that kill and that process and um it was super special we can't wait to go back but that's how i heard about two percent was just talking to sammy about her entrepreneurial endeavors and um, setting that up and so whenever i was i mean i was one of the things i was most excited about in starting my business was this aspect of um you know strategic partnerships and so i was excited to to get in contact with two percent whenever i was up and running so yeah so who are some of the, or what are, who, who are some of the organizations um, that you, that you're giving back to? Uh, CCA Coastal Conservation Association and uh, Delta Waterfowl are the main two right now. Uh, my brother is on the board of both of those. And so I'll be uh, helping, you know, set up some events this year around those two things, the, the banquet, and a couple other things. So those are the two the two big ones that I'm a part of. Yeah. And that's, it, you know, based on what you were telling me and, and things that, that you and your husband like to do, I mean, those, those do make, <clears throat> excuse me, make complete sense. Um, and I, I've said this on it to, to a lot of previous guests, but finding organizations that, um, you know, pair really well, uh, with what you like to do, um, is, is super important, um, when it comes to, to giving back and, and volunteering, uh, you know, your time or, or donating your money, because those are the ones where I think the, uh, the fulfillment is much higher, um, knowing that, you know, especially if you're, you know, like hunting and angling is, you know, it's, it's taking from the land, but you're also at the same time, um, you know, doing things outside of that, um, uh, to support, um, uh, you know, those organizations and the, maybe the specific species that they represent, I think is, is vital. And that's where, um, you know, people are, are most impactful, uh, with their time and dollars. Yes, absolutely. Um, it makes it more exciting to give when it's something, like I said, that you have a vested interest in. So, um, my husband is a huge, my husband and my brother are huge duck hunters. Um, I'm not as, as much into that. Honestly, I'm not very good at it and I'd like to be better. <laughs> it's hard when you have, it's hard when you have two babies and, you know, a couple of jobs, uh, to get up at four and, you know, go set up and sit in the freezing cold and, and, and try, but I would, I would like to get more so into that, but those are just, um, it's still just conserving those spaces. Um, I mean, it's meaningful to me because it's meaningful to my family. Um, so no, I agree. Uh, it's exciting to give when you care so much about it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I was going to ask you, you know, given, uh, you know, the current, your situation with, owning a medical practice, having two young kids, if, you know, how much time uh, you're actually able to, to get out and, and enjoy those wild places um, just with, you know, where you're at in life right now. No, exactly. It's been hard the past year. Um, um, you know, I was look, I was actually looking at my deer log, like right before we got on the phone, because uh, having babies uh, last winter was the first winter uh since I met Trent that I have not killed a deer and it was just, it was very hard for me. Very heartbreaking. Um, <laughs> it, so it, it makes a long it's hard to get out. It does. And we finally, we finally ran out of deer. So since I've known Trent, we have had deer meat at all times. We've had plenty of venison without running out. 
well, just because of babies and starting businesses and all of that, we didn't get one last winter. And so we finally ran out and I was like, oh my gosh, I have to, I have to buy meat. I had not bought meat at the grocery store until like the past six months. Isn't that such a good um, feeling? Though? It was very weird. Other, other than like, you know, I would buy like salmon here and there mm-hmm. um, uh, or like some scallops or something, but I had not bought, bought meat uh, just for general everyday use. Like sometimes we would go like pick up a brisket or something if we were doing that yeah. for people. Right. But it was, it was such a good, it was such a good feeling. But for the most part, we like always have our own meat on hand at all times. Um, but yeah, it's been hard, but I'm thankful for something like this because it still makes me feel that I am still a part when just at this season in my life, it's very hard to actively be out there doing the things that I love. And I will, you know, get to do again more one day when my kids are older and, um, we're a little, have a little more freedom, but, uh, yeah, this is, this is how I can continue to be involved at this season in my life, but it is hard, um, with babies to get to just go out on the water all day and, and, and bay fish. Yeah. Yeah. It's all about finding that balance. And, and yeah, I mean, my kids are a little bit older uh, than what yours are, but it's, it's still tough. And, you know, if I spend a weekend, um, you know, whitetail hunting or or turkey hunting or or whatever, you know, a day out fishing on the river, like I always feel a bit guilty um, just because I know that, you know, with two young kids, it's, it's a lot. And it's, uh, you know, know. in this particular case, you know, my wife is, is at home or, or, you know, doing something with the kids. Um, so yeah, yeah, sometimes it's, uh, it's just all about finding that right balance. And yeah, you just kind of in the back of your mind have that clock running on, okay, they're lo- they're going to be a little bit older, a little bit older, and it's going to be yeah. you know, a little bit easier to take them out. Or, you know, if they're going to go with grandma and grandpa for a day or something like that, like it won't be as difficult on them because they're, you know, a bit more self-sufficient. Yeah, no, I understand. Yeah, totally. It's hard. The, like I was saying last time we talked or earlier, I was like, you know, these, these are the days and I, I don't want to wish I, I'm, I'm definitely not wishing away this babyhood because it's really special and really sweet. And my husband says the same thing that he's, he feels guilty when he's out there, even though I'm like, go, go. Like he, I mean, he's going tonight. He's going offshore tomorrow, um, out off offshore and in, in the Gulf and, you know, go do it, go enjoy. Like one of us, one of us needs to, yeah. uh, so freezer's not going to fill itself. He feels, he, yeah, I know. He, he, he feels guilty sometimes too. And I, I appreciate that, but I mean, it's, it's just a season and, um, I think we'll miss it when it's gone, but I'm excited to get to do all of this stuff with them, you know, so soon because we're living life in the fast lane over here. Yeah. yeah. So do you have anything planned for, uh, like this fall in terms of, uh, a hunts or, or trips or anything that you're, you're looking forward to? My next target species, I, I'm, because I think in my personality, I, I am very structured and I think you should approach the target species like in a certain order based on like how long you've been going at it, um, which there's is completely arbitrary. I know it's not true, but I would uh, really like to kill an axis next. Oh, yeah. Um, so we have, a, we have a couple of friends that have, you know, access to, uh, to that, to, of ranches with with that with those animals on it so i'm hoping that i might get to do that this winter um we have a few things in the works and then hopefully i'm not sure but i mean hopefully possible that we could get um some more tags for new mexico this year um so axis and mule deer are the next two things on my list i don't feel like i've been in the game enough to 
like kill an elk or anything kind of more prized than uh, an axis or a mule, a mule deer. But that's kind of what I would like to get next. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good next step. And from what I understand, I've not had the, the opportunity, but I hear that access deer are just phenomenal tasting. Mm-hmm. They are. They are. They're incredible. Um, they're really, really pretty. So. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, they're absolutely beautiful animals. Um, so, uh, Sarah, before I let you go here, uh, where, if you're, you know, in the, the greater Austin area or the Dripping Springs area, or you're just, you know, the, the listeners are just interested in learning more um, about your practice. Where can people find Merino Medica at? Yeah, I have right now, I have an office uh, in Westlake that I'm at a couple days a week. And then another office in Dripping Springs, which is where I live um, a couple of days a week. And that's kind of the space that I'm trying to grow um, because I do, you know, I want to be in my community and, and, and see my patients at the grocery store and kind of build my practice where I live. Um, but, um, yeah, I have a office in downtown Dripping Springs, downtown. It's like three blocks. Um, but it's, it's super nostalgic. I love it. And then, um, at merinomedica.com, that's Medica with no L merinomedica.com. You can, uh, send me a message, a direct message. Uh, if you're, if people are interested in just hearing about the practice, I've, do an initial phone consultation that's free just you know to to meet each other and see if we would be a good doctor patient fit um i do offer telemedicine for you know if people are sick and just don't feel like coming in the office um i do i do see sick people though in the office i think that's what doctors are for and you can come see me if you're sick um (laughs) i'm not scared of sick people um but i do offer telemedicine and on that note um i mean i'm licensed to practice medicine in the in the state of texas so i even have a couple of patients that don't live in austin um and it's an excuse to you know come to austin once a year for your yearly physical and come to the hill country and visit some wineries and breweries you know while while you're um the week that you that come see me so um, anybody in Texas is welcome. And, um, right now I'm in Westlake and Dripping Springs, uh, in person and all the information about membership, uh, what's included in that membership, membership pricing, um, is really straightforward, but it's all on the website and you can message me directly from the website as well. Okay. Awesome. Well, Sarah, thank you a ton, um, for taking some time out of your day to join me. I really enjoyed uh, the conversation and, you know, hearing more about your medical practice and, you know, the approach that you're taking to doctor patient care and that relationship. I think it's, um, it's really a breath of fresh air. Uh, and I wish you, you know, nothing but success as you continue to grow your practice. Yeah. Thanks a lot. I, I appreciate your interest in, in chatting. It was, it was fun. I, I loved it. Thanks for, thanks for listening. Yeah, absolutely. I, 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 I always tell my guests, I mean, this is, you know, uh, what I love most about the podcast is just, you know, getting to hear people's stories and, you know, the, the line of work that they're in, because, you know, nine times out of 10, it's, it's a field or an occupation that I really don't know uh, a ton about. So it gives me an opportunity to, to learn something new as well. So yes, thank you again. Cool. Very cool. Yeah, you're welcome. Okay. Well, take care of yourself, Sarah, and we uh, look forward to talking to you again soon. You too. Thanks a lot. All right. Well, thank you again to Dr. Sarah Moreno for joining me on the podcast today. I would also like to thank the partners of the podcast, Go Hunt, Stone Glacier, Wild Rivers Coffee, Hardside Hydration, 
outdoor class and of course 2% for conservation. And if you're interested in learning more about 2% for conservation, you can visit their website fishandwildlife.org and over there you can see all the certified brands that have committed to conservation that you should support when you shop. I also encourage you guys to give 2% a follow on social media where it's going to be only um, conservation, positive conservation driven content uh, landing in your feed so you'll certainly enjoy that. So again, if you'd like to learn more about 2% for conservation, you can Look for them online on social media or at fishandwildlife.org. Thanks for joining me again this week, everyone. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Uh, stay tuned next week. We've got a good one coming for you. But uh, until then, stay safe out there and remember that conservation starts with you.